I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. There is a tug of war at play. The tussle is over the health and well-being of millions of people. On the one hand, there are the medical professions, doctors, nurses, and rehabilitation professions. On the other, a booming multi-million dollar wellness industry, alternate medicine, natural cures, diets and exercise regimens, sometimes with little or no supporting research. Caught in the middle, all of us, bombarded with information online and in the media, always chasing that elusive goal, fitness, good health, looking a certain way, making sense of illnesses and symptoms for which there is seemingly no explanation. People are being let down by the medical establishment and are increasingly turning to wellness practices. But it's worth asking, at what cost? Today, we discuss disability and wellness culture. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Juita Gupta. My guest today is Jacqueline Alness. Jacqueline is a runner, writer, and assistant professor of English at Westchester University. She is the author of The Fruit Cure, The Story of Extreme Wellness Turned Sour. Jacqueline, hello and welcome to The Pulse. I'm really happy you could join us today. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. In a few words, tell us about the book. What's it all about? Well, um, when I was in college, I was a Division One athlete, and I quickly grew sick with the neurological issues that were kind of tricky for doctors to figure out. Um, and so long story short, I ended up on a website called 30bananasaday.com at my most desperate. And I never became a full fruitarian, but I did start to believe in the idea of purifying my body from illness, um, which I think is something all of us can relate to is that pull toward WebMD or trying to self-diagnose or find answers different places. Um, and so my book is about not only my own health journey and kind of finding peace in, um, you know, with illness, living with illness, um, but it's also about these, like you said in your intro, um, alternative wellness uh, cures pitched to us and how they affect our lives. You write a book that is part autobiography and part history and research. Why was it so important for you to weave the two strands together? I mean, you could have written of what I would have said it would have been a very compelling memoir about your your particular individual journey, but you spend a lot of time and I suspect a lot of effort compiling a history that looks at the origins of vegetarianism, veganism, uh, and, 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 and all these wellness movements in the Western world. Why was it so important for you to put the two things together? I think it was almost healing for me in a way to do that. When I was at my most ill, I remember feeling very, very, very lonely with that. Um, I didn't know a lot of other people who had experienced what I did. And I felt like, is it me? Um, which is something I talk a lot about in the book is this sort of internalized guilt and shame and loneliness that I think illness can create in us. So when I started doing this research, I started asking myself why I was so obsessed with this fruit group. Um, it was something that, again, I'd never fully committed myself to, but I found that over the period of a decade, 
I had followed these influencers who pitched a fruit diet on Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, you name it. I was kind of lurking and looking. And so by answering that question of like, why was I, why was that something that compelled me during a time that I was sick? I started to find out that I really was not at all the only person this had ever happened to. And that all of us in some way or another, I think, are affected by these different subcultures and wellness culture in general and the ways that we think about disability and the ways that we think about the body. Um, and so it became this process that, like you said, yes, was a ton of work, but also became really invigorating to see in a way how historically this has been the case that people reach toward for alternative cures, even without research you know, the way that we think about our bodies really hasn't changed all that much, which was interesting to me to think about. And on the flip side, you've got the medical establishment and you went to see a cadre of doctors, uh, the, you know, the sports doctor at university and then from there a neurologist and you went to Duke Hospital to, you know, to get tested for epilepsy and on and on and on. And no one seemed to be able to come to any conclusions about what was going on with your body. What was your experience life like with the medical profession? Yeah, it was difficult during that time. I think especially since I had come from a background of being a Division One athlete, I really at that time in my life viewed my body as something that was completely within my control. I could, you know, run a certain split on command and I, I really took pride in that. And so losing that ability was difficult for me to understand why it had happened, understand who I was without sport the way I had, you know, used to participate in it. And then I also think back to, I was 18 years old um, and now I teach 18 year olds. And when I see them and when I look back at my past self, um, there's a lot going on at that age. There's a vulnerability that is there that maybe I don't have as much of now just because I've learned to advocate for myself. I've learned what's available to me. I've learned what I can ask for or that I can go get a second referral or go get you know help where I need it. Um, but when I was 18, my coach and the athletic doctor and the neurologist all told me to run and they told me I was fine and they told me I was normal and they told me I was healthy. And to hear people in positions of power say things like that but then have the reality of my body be that I was certainly not okay, really put me in a place of doubting my own symptoms and doubting my own ability to understand my body, which was really disorienting for, I would say it took me over a decade to kind of figure out how to um, recalibrate with myself and check in with myself on how I'm feeling and how I'm doing. Um, and it did take it also took years to find a doctor who really listened to me. And when I first had that experience, I remember just full on weeping in the waiting room after because I remember feeling this sense of like, oh my gosh, this person listened to me. They validated these symptoms that I've been having and they gave me a scientific reason for them, which is what I've been searching for for a long time. Um, and so that was really empowering for me. Um, but that doesn't happen for everyone and that doesn't happen all the time. And it in our system takes 
sometimes way too much money and way too much time to get to answers for people, which I think is why those gaps leave us vulnerable to reaching for solutions that might not be the best for us in the end. That's right. And in the book, you talk about a woman, Essie Honeyball, who becomes a fruitarian. And for years, she's eating fruit, much to the consternation of her family, even as her health goes down the drain, basically. Uh, that's a gross oversimplification of her story. But the people that you talked about uh, following on the internet, uh, Durian Ryder and uh, and Freely, the two people who come up with this 30 bananas a day fruit pl- uh, you know, plan, they're not nobodies. They had massive social media followings and they got very rich off of pushing this diet on people. What gives them so much enduring power in our zeitgeist? Is it just because the medical establishment is is failing people or is something more going on there? That's a great question Um, and something I've thought about so much. I don't know if I have all the answers, but one thing that I do think is contributing to not just their rise to power, but other social media influencers' ability to sell these products, tinctures, diets, without any sort of credibility training or uh, research behind them, is I think that there's this desire for a quick fix or a quick solution or sort of a one-size-fits-all. If you do this, this will happen for you. Um, I interviewed two dietitians for the book who were talking about how if they were to say their truth, which they do on social media, they usually say things like, really, we'll give it a try with you and we'll hope it works and we'll do these different journeys, but we're not sure what the answer is. That kind of nuance doesn't really play as well in terms of clickbait as something like, hey, eat 30 bananas and you'll be the youngest, most vital Um, athlete you've ever been in your life and you'll also feel amazing every day and your acne will clear and everything that's wrong with you will be gone. Um, That works a lot better in terms of clicks and in terms of how sexy it sounds, I think, to an audience. Um, And so I think what I found was that a lot of people who followed them, or at least the people I interviewed, were in their late teens. They were young women who were looking for the quote unquote ideal body type Uh, which freely kind of advertises visually on her social media and through her rhetoric as well. Um, And it's, it's really a diet that's advertised as like, this is, this is the answer to anything you could want in this world. In your book, you have a a really phenomenal short passage and I'll read it out to you. Um, And I was hoping you could unpack it for all of us. Eating fruit and fruit alone is not the issue. Instead, The ways that the fruit cure has been evangelized, monetized, and weaponized is a symptom of something much larger, one that stretches back all the way to the racist origins of thinness itself. So there's, I feel like, a ton of things that we can talk about there. But what are some of the key takeaways, would you say, from that excerpt for all of us? So something that I found to be really interesting in my research was I used Sabrina String's Fearing the Black Body book. It was a great resource and it's an amazing book, so I highly recommend it. Um, But in that book, Strings talks about the racialized origins of thinness. And so thinking about um, in England, white women wanting to distinguish their bodies from black women would reach for thinness as a way to do so. Um, And that thinness was also tied up in strange ways with Christianity as sort of a measure of what you could abstain from and how pure you were. Um, So food became a source of shame 
And anyone's body who was sort of outside that mode of being really thin was a source of shame. Um, and that's something to me that was really interesting because you see these women's stories. I think I mentioned one, the woman who reaches for um, the milk diet, she drinks ass's milk three times a day. And then you see that sort of repeated with someone like Essie Honabal in South Africa, where she's just reaching for fruit as a means to remind herself that she's pure and also stay really thin. And you see the same thing with Freely, where it's this pressure on thinness and purifying yourself from toxins. So these things that might seem like they're trendy Instagram bait actually have roots in much much deeper than just being a social media fad or something that people are clinging on to, um, which I found really interesting to unpack and sort of relate to my own life and my own perceptions of bodies and where those things come from. I thought that was fascinating. Do you think part of it was also loneliness? In the book, you talk about how you you discovered the 30 bananas a day diet at a time when you were in a wheelchair not really leaving the apartment very much, just maybe taking one or two classes and on campus, your roommates were gone most of the time. Did some of it just stem from loneliness and desperation for answers? Yes, 100%. Um, I, yeah, at that time in my life, I had gone from being a semi-normal college student, and I say semi-normal because I was still grappling with the loss of my team, so I wasn't as social as I might have been, but um, yeah, I spent 90% of my time in my room on the internet, which is probably never a good thing to spend that much time alone on the internet, uh, especially when you're, I was waiting for a bed in the epilepsy ward to open and I had this extreme anxiety over what they would find out or not find out in terms of, can you please, you know, name the thing that's happening to me? Um, that would, that felt like it would be a form of power for me. And in that waiting, I think I was reaching for something to control or something to sort of soothe the, the space that not having an answer had left inside me. Um, and so when I read, it wasn't so much the website itself, because as I talk about in the book, the 30 Bananas a Day website is kind of funny. It has like cartoon people holding bags of bananas as if they're weightlifters, and it has like these apples parachuting from the sky and like going toward a dancing cucumber. So it's kind of a little bit ridiculous when I first saw it. But the thing that really started to get me actually thinking like maybe this is a, a real thing is that I would I would go to this page called Testify where people would write in about how they'd been sort of saved from the misery of their old lives. And one of them was a former D1 athlete who had gone through a mysterious onslaught of symptoms. And so I saw myself in her and I was like, finally, someone gets me or someone has been through this and she found a way to the other side. Maybe I can too, if I just apply myself enough. Um, and I kind of think that's a lie that maybe our culture perpetuates too, which is that if we work hard enough or if we just want it enough, we can have the things that we dream of um, instead of just recognizing that sometimes symptoms just happen and that's okay and living with them and learning to live with them and giving yourself grace and finding you know accessible accommodations within different spaces can be a possibility too instead of just thinking we have to like overcome or become inspirational in some way by eradicating those symptoms from our bodies. 
In the book, you talk about maybe spending less time on looking for cures and instead looking for healing. What's the difference between a cure and, and looking for healing? For me, it was, I thought a cure would be something that ended my symptoms. That's what I really dreamt of back in the day was I want to stop this. I do not want to experience these things anymore. Um, and by doing that, I think I denied myself experiencing the reality of the symptoms in a lot of ways. I would pretend like they didn't exist or I would pretend like they didn't actually impact my life that much. So for example, even up until my PhD, I would go to class if I had symptoms. So if I had blurry vision or dizziness and I was unable to see the board or talk, I would still go because I thought my symptoms weren't bad enough to warrant rest um, or taking care of myself. Um, and I think by doing that, I was hoping for, like you said, a cure, which was just like either a pill or some sort of other medical intervention or solution that would take them away. Whereas healing for me has looked like, what does it mean to say, it's okay that I'm feeling bad right now? And what does it mean to sit with the emotion of that and the cultural forces that ask me to not allow for that rest? And what does it allow for, like, what do I need to do in order to make myself still feel okay while balancing these symptoms in my life. Um, and that's been a lot harder work than just a cure. Um, cause that's taken a lot of years of undoing my own internalized ableism and just thinking about different things that people have told me in the past about my body and sort of reckoning with those things. In the book, you ask a really interesting question that you don't really answer, but I would be very curious because um, you ask in the book, what responsibility do platforms like YouTube or Instagram have for providing a space for people to put out information or misinformation that has very little scientific basis, like, you know, the 30 bananas a day, and there are, and it's not the only sort of bad diet out there. I wonder if you have given some thought to what responsibility a social media platform might have in the situation, if any. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess <laughs> it's a question that I asked as well. But, um, you know, it's I think we're starting to see this with um, moments like conspiracy theorists finally getting booted off of different platforms if they're spreading too many conspiracy theories on podcasts or something like that. Um, I think there's a real reluctance, though, for people to say this is okay or this is not okay if that makes sense like i'm thinking right now for example all over my instagram in the us people are drinking raw milk and there are these influencers who are like we should drink raw milk and this is good for you and it's coming from sources just because i've obviously rabbit holed uh seems to be my interest is rabbit holing down weird diet trends um but it's come from people who are entirely unlicensed in a conventional sense they'll have they'll like name themselves things like doctors or they'll say that they're nutritionists but they don't have any certifications that i can tell to actually back that up um and so part of me thinks it's just a reluctance to say like this is all the way wrong um because i, I think it's hard to distinguish like where that line should be drawn just because there is so much nuance in health and there is so much nuance in the body and there is so much nuance in the ways that we all choose to eat and fuel ourselves. Um, 
but I think like, I guess, so I guess for me, it's harder to distinguish like what kinds of information should maybe be, um, monitored by platforms, but maybe age is something that should be thought about just because like I talked about before the age of a lot of the young women who did end up eating a fruit-based diet was pretty young. Um, and so I think then you're very vulnerable to this kind of black or white thinking and this kind of all or nothing, you should do this trendy um, eating plan. And a lot of them expressed regret over the years or months that they spent doing this diet. And so saving some of that grief might be something to look into mm -hmm. in the future. I'm not sure. No, that's those are all really good points. And I think the other thing to think about is just the perils of, oh, but this person has so many subscribers or this person clearly has a following, so they must be a credible source. And I and I wonder a little bit about whether that in some ways also boxes in these influencers themselves. You talked about uh, the people who are uh, creating the fruit diet suddenly doing a not so much a 180, but turning around and having another diet, which is the raw till four diet, where it's like, okay, do you, well, until 4 p.m. you can eat raw, but after that you can maybe steam your food a little bit, but still keeping the page and all the social media presence up and alive for 30 bananas a day. So what happens in situations like that? I mean, you clearly saw a, a bit of an alarm there going, but hang on a second, you ca it can't be one, you know, it has to be one or the other. How can you do both? But does that kind of a thing also present red flags for people or how do how do people sort of navigate that as as consumers of social media that's a great question and you bring up something that one of the sources i talked to they wanted to remain anonymous but they told me that they were they had been a former influencer and i think they had over a hundred thousand followers at one point and they did youtube instagram snapchat and were making money from those things i think they even wrote an ebook and they mentioned that when they were in it at their peak, it felt like an echo chamber because it started to feel like they only reached for sources that continued to inform and feed what they wanted to believe rather than allowing themselves to change and grow and express that maybe there was more nuance in what they could eat than they had originally thought. But they were, they were reluctant to do that because they had this mass amount of people following them for this very strict diet plan. And so I think that can happen to anyone on social media in any sort of um, role of guru or guide or um, I guess influencer, where if they're making money selling you one idea, how are you supposed to express then to your audience that your idea is evolving? Um, and I think that for me, it's interesting because as a human person who is continuing to grow, I think growth and change is one of the most exciting parts of being alive, which is that I can say I was wrong, or I can say, you know, my beliefs on that have changed, or I have to change in order to meet this new situation. Um, but yeah, I think that was a question I wrestled with a lot in the book was sort of my it wasn't even about the diet changing so much. It was about this reluctance to all say out loud, like, hey, maybe you don't need to eat all raw anymore because we're not. And maybe we should think about the fact that we are literally making money from people trying a diet that we personally don't think works well anymore. And what does that mean that we're profiting off of this and profiting off of people who are going to messaging boards, like I wrote in the book, 
who are very sick. There was that person who was like, I think they were cold all the time and they weren't feeling well. And everyone on the message board just said, you know, try, just keep trying, just keep doing it and you'll feel better. Um, so that's where it got really murky for me in terms of the profit off of plans that were so rigid, but were no longer being adhered to. Uh, and just the, the vitriol that someone would be faced with if they did criticize the diet in a public way. I mean, there was a Jezebel article that says that if you went to like the vegan corner of the internet, you'd have all these people basically screaming at each other and it can get very fractious and divisive. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left and I wanted to invite you to read a short excerpt from your book as we go to get towards the end of the interview. Would you, why don't you set it up for us? Tell us what we're going to read and then uh, go ahead and read a, a short excerpt for us. Sure. Uh, this is from the time when I was sitting alone in my room. Um, and maybe it's something we all can relate to. Because like I said, I think I have a lot of friends who turn to the internet when something's wrong before they get to go in to see a doctor. Um, so this was probably at my most desperate, um, me thinking about my body and thinking about my fears. Uh, so during those long days spent alone in my room, my desk became an altar, Google a God I prayed to. Am I epileptic? I want to walk again. Am I sick? I am afraid. And the internet responded with quizzes to tell me whether or not I had temporal lobe epilepsy, infographics with symptoms of a stroke, advice on whether to exercise with seizures. I took every test to see whether or not I could determine what was wrong with me. I read stories of people who had suddenly fallen ill. I tried to find myself in a variety of WebMD descriptors that became a funhouse mirror for my own symptoms. When I had exhausted all that, I clicked on a website that would change everything. I found the two banana-wielding gurus I thought might be able to save me. That's incredible. Thank you very much for, for doing the excerpt for us. Uh, just before we go, tell us where we can pick up a copy of your book. And if it is available as an audiobook, you must let us know where we can get the audiobook as well. It is available anywhere you can buy books. So um, bookshop, uh, Penguin Random House has a collection of all the links of where you can buy it, I think. Um, places like Powell's, PNT Knitwear is doing my book launch, so I'll shout them out. Um, yeah, but honestly, anywhere. And I think... Right now, Australia and New Zealand have the audiobook, but I'm not sure it's quite made its way to the US or Canada. So I will be pushing for that because I myself love to listen to audiobooks. So I'll keep you posted if that happens. Amazing. You and me both, uh, audiobooks for the win. Jacqueline, thank you yes. very much for being on the program. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Jacqueline Allness is a runner, writer, and assistant professor of English at Westchester University. She's the author of The Fruit Cure, The Story of Extreme Wellness Turns Sour. If you have any feedback, you can always write to us at feedback at ami.ca or give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And don't forget to leave permission to play the audio on the program. If you are on X, you can always find us at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. Uh, to let us know that the tweet pertains to this program, or you can find me on X at Juwita Gupta. Of course, if you are listening to the podcast of the show, or if you are listening to us or watching us on YouTube, you are welcome to leave a comment down below. And don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified about future episodes of The Pulse. The videographer for today is Ted Cooper. Jordan Steves is our video editor. Mark Aflalo is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And I've been your host, Chuita Gupta. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>